Hi, this is Teddy Dinker, first-year MBA student and first-time podcaster. This is the start of what I'm sure will be a storied career in podcasting. Luckily, I have the privilege of interviewing a remarkable woman and alumna of Vanderbilt Business School, Cindy Kent. Cindy is a veteran of the healthcare industry, most recently leading the 3M Infection Prevention Division as president and general manager. She currently sits on the board of directors at Best Buy and also advises Ruby, a Nashville-based company that offers a day-to-day financial management and information sharing tool just for families. Cindy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Teddy. It is absolutely an honor and a delight to be back at Owen. So you're on a sabbatical right now. What led you to take a sabbatical and how would you advise others to use time off for personal growth? Yeah, so um, this was a big decision and I know that I didn't take it lightly, nor should anyone, to step back at um, such a critical stage, what people would call a pinnacle in your career, um, and not have a role already predetermined. Like that was, that it could have been jeopardy or career suicide, but you just know when it's time, right? And so for me, being in healthcare is such a critical time where I'm looking at making an impact. I can't sell any more widgets. And so I'm looking at what do I want my legacy to be? What should I be thinking about? There's so many changes at an accelerated pace of innovation that's happening in healthcare. Mm-hmm. Clearly, we read something about the system, which I'll talk a little bit more about later in the podcast, being broken. And I wanted time to think about what is the best way of using my gifts and skills uh, in this industry that I've been in for the last 27 years. And so I wanted to create space to think about that. Mm-hmm. So it was a leap of faith. And interestingly enough, there is a Zen saying that says, leap in the net will appear. Mm-hmm. And here's what has been so interesting. So I planned the first six months. Like I knew what I wanted to do. I've done a number of retreats. So for people that know me, I'm, I, you know, I like my luxury things. Yeah. But one of the first things I did, and I booked it in advance, so it was a forcing mechanism, I couldn't change my mind, I couldn't go backwards, was to book some time where I rented out, they call it a hermitage, a one, it wasn't even a room, it was like a bed, a picture window, and a hand-carved rocking chair looking at a window. <laughs> and you go into the wilderness, no plumbing, no electricity, no anything. Mm-hmm. And that was pretty dramatic, to walk out of a company and then spend four days with nothing alone. And... It was a great way to start, and then I flew to Nashville, and a friend of mine, I didn't even know that this place existed, as soon as I landed, within an hour, we were on the road driving to the Cumberland Plateau near McMinnville, two hours away, um, to a yoga retreat on the top of a mountain, and and in silence. And so even though she was present in there, it was a lot of personal reflection time and of, you know, a very spiritual environment of me going within and seeking, what is it? What is my heart telling me? You can get so busy that you can't even hear yourself think, let alone listening to the voice within. And, and so, um, that's how I started. And then I did the fun stuff and I did a Tony Robbins event. I've done online uh, speaking training and other things along the way. And, and one of the gifts though, I've been, as I've started to start interviewing and I've had a couple of uh, offers that weren't the right ones, but I've had three CEOs now of major companies that tell me to make sure I do this well. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what, what do you mean? They are like, you will never 
have this kind of time again, right? So mm-hmm. I aspire to be a CEO and as well. And, and they said, what you have is a gift. And the fact that you're eight months into the sabbatical and getting frustrated, you will easily pilfer, pilfer the time. Mm-hmm. Don't let that happen. Like what else? Do yourself your bucket list. What else would you like to do if you had what you do all the time in the world? Um, uh, the gift of financial resources. Mm-hmm. What else would you like to do? And those conversations have been in the last month. And their frame of sitting in the chairs to tell me that this is a gift has really caused me to reduce like less anxiety about yeah. it all, to breathe a little easier, to think. So I have the most radically exciting summer plans. <laughs> and now I'm thinking, oh my God, what if I get an offer before my summer? You're like maybe I, I don't want to start until August or September because yeah. I really have a fully booked summer schedule. Yeah. Um, but it is exciting. It has been refreshing. And I feel like now I'm ready for the next leg, more imaginative, more creative. I'm ready to get back in um, you know, after the summer. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what would you say you, you really have learned over the last eight months? Is there th- some sort of nuggets of wisdom or, or anything that was, I guess, revealed or any sort of deep insight that you've gotten out of, out of these last eight months and kind of how to craft the next yeah. few months of, of your time off? Um, it's less about what was new. It was about giving place. Yeah. to the whispers, what I call the whispers of the soul, the whispers of the inner person. And for me, that is about purpose-driven leadership. And I've mm-hmm. always tried to lead at a higher level, what I call enlightened leadership, being sensitive to the people on my team. And I'll give an example. I had an employee, which is, we used to call him the general. He was my <laughs> VP of sales. And he, his team knew which mountain to take. They knew exactly the marching orders, what were the selling messages, all those things. And when I promoted him to VP, I said, people know what you want them to do. Now, how do you capture the hearts of the people to make them want to do it for you? And that is what's happened over these last few months. How do I, with the confidence and the clarity, lead in that vein? Like, Mm -hmm. it was mostly of, this is who I am. Um, In that time period, I also turned 50. And it's just been a time of clarification that I am really strongly in tune with myself as a leader mm-hmm. and how I show up every day and the consciousness of that and to know your why. That's what's come into view. Mm-hmm. My personal why. Why are you in healthcare? What are you doing with your platform at the top of the pyramid? And there are things that I could be doing more of using my voice for good, connecting people, like people call, whether it be students or other people and saying, this is kind of what I have in mind to do. And to know that that something that's an email or a phone call can totally change the course of somebody else's trajectory, life and career. Mm-hmm. So all of those things have come into focus by having the time to be intentional about them. You write about your own struggle with success and significance. What happens when your soul is no longer satiated by traditional measures of success? Yeah. So I want to be clear um, (laughs) because I do write about that a lot and I'm still working through it. (laughs) Let me be clear. I am not diminishing the impact of, of, of financial and traditional models of success, right? All I'm saying is don't let the trappings of success be your own personal prison. 
and mm -hmm. what else? How do you use your platform and your success as a mechanism for greater good in the world? I happen to be very blessed and fortunate to be part of two organizations in particular, many more, but these two in particular, the Henry Crown Fellowship at the Aspen Institute and the Nation Swell Council. Both of them are uniquely focused on taking successful leaders who desire to have a life of significance, well, not desire to have, maybe we sometimes we don't even know we need, <laughs> but how do you make a greater dent in the universe? And we wrestle with it. We, it, there are these individuals that you read about in the Harvard Business Review, Fortune Magazine, et cetera, and we're sitting in class in seminars together or sponsoring events together in the case of Nationswell. And when we see a social entrepreneur, we would say, you know what, call my office, we will fund or personally write a check to support um, your model to scale it, and we don't go through all the mechanisms. And so they marry these social opportunities, in the case of Nationswell, with people with resources. And it's not always financial, it's know-how. One member in particular built the first or developed uh, a Michelin restaurant using sustainable sourcing for all of his products. When I was in Minnesota and we were trying to establish a community food garden in a, um, a food desert in the inner city, I called sight unseen. I had never met the man. I saw his background in the, in the membership directory. I called. He told me that he traveled 50 out of the 52 weeks of the year, giving talks on sustainable food sourcing all over the world. And he said yes and became an advisor to our local team just because of that community. And so that's what I mean of there are tons of people that you read about and look at and you just think that they're untouchable. And all of them, much like these writings, desire is to just to do do good mm -hmm. you know make a difference have a life that moves them from success to significance mm -hmm. so so looking ahead where do you see the healthcare industry headed and what gets you really excited about healthcare? where do you see opportunities kind of i guess give us a macro view of of where you see the healthcare so industry going. where i hope uh that it's headed we've we've got to solve the triple aim we just we just it is um it is unconscionable, particularly in the U.S., right, that we spend as much as we do, a significant part of the GDP, and don't have outcomes that match less developed countries and societies. And with the aging population, I think I heard a stat that we have 10,000 uh, people turning 65 every single day. So with, the, with that as a mega trend and consumerism rising, we have got to have better outcomes at a lower cost. So that said, one of the greatest investments and percent of investments of venture capital funds today is in the area of venture of digital health. And so what I hope happens, but technology for technology's sake, right? Especially when you're talking about biologics and stuff. The programs will only be as smart as our understanding of biology. So mm -hmm. the science does not go away. It is the foundation of what we're using the technology to solve for in a faster way and scale faster. That said, here's my hope, is that we become more efficient in the ecosystem. And what I mean by that is we have people who understand technology, but they don't understand regulated markets and space. Yeah. And in that case, we have, unfortunately, things like Theranos 
happening, right? Where you want to sell the concept as a technology, but it can't be without the ethics that go into uh, regulated spaces like healthcare and defense and other areas that, that are regulated. So what I hope is that we take the best and the brightest minds on the technology side with the traditional medicines and the biotechs and we create how efficiencies that at the end of the day, you and me as patients, family and loved ones benefit that we right size and we stand on the right side of history as it relates to healthcare in the world and in the U.S. I hope so too. Yeah. Do you see Nashville leading the way there? I think Nashville can. Dean Johnson and I were talking about this um, earlier today. Nashville is becoming such a growth engine for healthcare in the services side. So it's interesting because, you know, as I continue to have these meet and greets and networking meetings, I kid you not, in the last three weeks, several of the people that people have referred me to have been based in Nashville. I'm like, hey, when are you going to be back? And so this being my hometown, it is really great to see. But it is a specific side of the ecosystem around services, around long-term care, right? It's booming in, in terms of long-term care. So I think it's definitely a hub capitalizing on some of those mega trends. But I am also very excited about what's happening in biotech in Boston mm -hmm. and on healthcare and digi-health of what's happening in San Francisco as well. Mm -hmm. So um, stay tuned for all of us. Yeah, yeah, cool. So speaking more on healthcare, if you were an MBA, you're graduating today, you're wanting to go into healthcare, where would you go? So I thought about that question when you sent it. Here's the reality of the matter. It doesn't matter where yeah. you start, right? Here's the great thing about the generation that's coming through now, a lot more fluid than my Gen X generation. And so wherever you start, my, my point is, you're gonna learn something, yeah. right? And then to be able to take that and pivot into something else, you're more apt to change. I just saw a report that the average person, this is for undergrad though, coming out of undergrad will change jobs 14 times in a lifetime, right? For my parents' generation that worked one job, yeah. one company, their entire careers largely, that is unthinkable. Yeah. And so my point is, if I was coming out, first of all, I would get an MBA in healthcare. Let's start with that because I'm not passionate about it. That's a good so that's pitch. a good start. Um, but the second part of where would you go, I think that it really doesn't matter which segment of healthcare. What I'm really excited about, right, is I'm really excited about um, cell and gene therapy. I'm really excited about, super excited about diagnostics. I'm super, super excited about uh, biotech and this new cross-section of biotech, which is um, prescription digital therapies, which uses technology as a prescribed therapy instead of or with an oral or prescription and molecular therapy. Like this, the, the world has changed so quickly that I am just excited about healthcare. So which subsector you go into, the, you know, I, I don't know really matters. I think that there will be an overhaul in the provider services on the provider side. I love what Kaiser Permanente is doing on the, you know, they combine the integrated uh, care delivery with the services and with the provider and payer, like the fact that they're mashing it up like that. I think we're going to see a lot 
more models of integrated care mm-hmm. uh, networks in a way that we haven't seen before. It's more than a hospital bed. I think care at home, the work that Best Buy is doing with home health is particularly exciting, which was part of the impetus outside of just having a great management team and governance machine are areas that are uber exciting. More and more people want to stay in their homes to maintain their vitality. And shoot, I just think everything's possible with an MBA in healthcare. Absolutely. So you mentioned being offered a lateral position and you were going through lots of high potential activities early on in your career. And instead of getting a promotion, you, you felt like you kind of got passed over, kept on getting passed over for promotions. And this activity never really materialized into to real progress. Um, so kind of, I guess, walk me through that, that time period in your life and I guess kind of what advice you have if, if, if there are other listeners out there that are kind of going through that same process of yeah. being high potential uh, and the feeling of getting passed over. Yeah. And so I want to be uh, uber clear, right, for the folks um, in all fairness that that in the organization I was at that point in my career, it wasn't about being passed over necessarily. I didn't move as fast, right? So it was never a setback. It was never a matter of, it was just when I looked around my cohort, what were the rates? And there's lots of research around this. Um, they were moving on to the next level faster than I was, even though from a rating and performance standpoint, from a high post standpoint, I was rated higher and better. And so that was that was the context. And so I coined this phrase later as I have had time to reflect on it and evaluated it mm-hmm. that has become one of my greatest leadership lessons. And that is activity without progress is in progress. Anybody that knows me knows I say it all the time. Mm-hmm. And for example, when you ask people about what are some of your your greatest accomplishments or or especially in performance reviews, what are you most proud of that you did this year? They give you a laundry list of activities. Like you don't even realize that's not a result. That's not an impact. That's not net. And so what I realized, and, and I was being asked during this period of time, I was being asked to go present to the board and present to senior executives. And if there was this program and that program, I was always there, right? And yet my peers who weren't doing all those things were moving faster. And I'm like, I don't, I, I was confused thinking that activity was progress and it wasn't. So that's the individual level, but it's also true organizationally, right? If you look at how budgets are laid out, look at the SGNA, looking at expenses, uh, just walking through the profit and loss statements and where the company is spending their money, how productive is that dollar, right? You should get better with innovation over time, such as you're more efficient and able to expand margins. And often we don't see that happening. Mm-hmm. And so I, we can get caught up in what we're doing instead of stepping back and saying, we're trying to make a difference in people's lives. Mm-hmm. All the stuff that we get hyped about, this advisory board, that advi- stop it. Just stop the madness. Mm-hmm. And to be reminded of what net impact really is and what's the best path to it. I have a big thing tied to this on the critical few. You can't do seven things. Don't give me seven performance goals. At most, you're going to have three to four. 
-hmm. right? Maybe fifth on a really good day, but mostly three to four. And if you do those really well, only then do you earn the right to move on to the other goals, mm -hmm. right? Because it, it diffuses uh, impact and ability to make a difference yeah. and resources, to be quite frank. Mm -hmm. yeah. It kind of goes back to, to what you were saying about your why, and it sounds like companies really need to be doing this as well, as oh, yeah. really reflecting on why are we doing this and what's the outcome that we want. You know, sidebar, um, <laughs> Simon Sinek does tons of work on the corporate why. I'm a big fan yeah. of, of his. Um, but I'm also starting to hear more and more CEOs and organizational leaders talking about both the personal why as well as the soul of the organization, the personal mission. Mm -hmm. I think, and this is the one thing I applaud millennials and now Gen Zers for pushing organizations to be purpose-driven, yeah. right? It can't be about profits alone, purpose and profits. You can do well while doing good. Yeah. And I think that leaders who are able to link those together and understand that um, will be able, first of all, their, their mission and values and vision statements would resonate with younger employees more and that you have a, a sense that you're making a difference in that organization. Mm -hmm. Because th at the end of the day, employees are paid volunteers. And the one thing that we saw with boomers is that they were so sensitive to security mm -hmm. that they would stay loyal no matter what. Mm -hmm. And what I'm finding and seeing in these next generations is that it doesn't matter how much they get paid if they don't believe in what the organization is doing and they and they walk they they make their voice heard by moving to the next organization mm -hmm. and so i think it's best in the best interest of of both the customers as well as the bottom line to pay attention to the organizational why yeah absolutely we actually learn about that a lot here at Owen. There's a great class. Sounds like I need to come yeah. back and do a, some kind of yeah. supplemental MBA. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently, <laughs> apparently you can audit classes as an alumna. This so makes it good. Go. I just might. Thank yeah, you. Of course. That's a hot tip. <laughs> Speaking of tips, what are some tips for seeking sponsorship in corporate America? Yeah, so um, I'll take one minute to explain. So sponsorship is a very unique thing. It's not, it's not the same as mentoring, right? Mm -hmm. So I... I think about talk about a lot about the difference between mentoring and sponsoring mentors are people who talk to you about you sponsors are people who use their organizational leverage their personal power and brand to talk to other people about you and to influence outcomes on your behalf the first thing that i would say is that it's it's impossible for you to just go ask somebody will you sponsor me i'm like <laughs> the, the best that you can do is make yourself worthy of sponsorship and and not in a you know, degrading, entitled sort of way. It sounds bad. But people take to people, right, that it's it's a mutuality to it. If you are my protege, you make me look good and I can learn from you. It's not a one-way street. Mm -hmm. And as a result, my experience has been both for people who sponsored me as well as people I sponsored, I volunteered or they volunteered for me. That something that was a luncheon or a working project became a sponsoring relationship where they said, you know, this opportunity came open in my division or out of my division, and I think you're the best candidate for it. There have been times with people, you know, that didn't know that I saw talent that they didn't see in themselves. Mm -hmm. And I said, I want you for this role. In some cases, it represented sometimes a two jump move, a two step promotion. But when you believe in somebody that strongly, and then their duty was to perform. And my experience has been when you sponsor someone or you're sponsored, 
they tend to work a lot harder because they know that your reputation is on the line as well. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I, I believe showing up, not just head down, tails up, but getting involved in the community of the workplace, being on some of the employee resource groups, going above and beyond are things that potential protégés can do to be noticed, to stand out, to make a difference so that a person of influence can raise their hand to sponsor them. Cool. Well, I think that's all the time that we have for today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Cindy. Thanks to Cindy for her time this week. And thank you for listening. You can find more stories and information about Ellen by visiting our website, business.vanderbilt.edu, or following at Vanderbilt Ellen on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Vanderbilt University or the Vanderbilt Ellen Graduate School of Management. Music is provided by Mike Foster, and I'm Nate Luce.